Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I'm Emily Booter, Managing Editor of No Film School. And I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. It is September 15th, 2016, and in this week's special episode from the Toronto International Film Festival, we will bring you all the news we caught while conducting 30 interviews and seeing 33 movies between the three of us. And there is lots ahead. Hi, everyone. Whoa. Welcome to this week's show. We're not sorry to tell you, that was a Canadian accent, that we are still in Toronto at the Toronto International Film Festival. We recorded last week's show here when things were just kicking off. And as you heard at the top of the show, we have now done a shit ton of stuff and have so much news to bring you from filmmakers and films from all over the world. What's that all about? Good job. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing we like to do when we are on the ground at these festivals is bring you some of the kind of scene and background information so that you know when you might want to bring your film here. So this year at the festival, there were 397 total films that screened. And breaking that down a little bit, that's 296 features and 101 shorts. Just to give you guys some context, Sundance has about 200 films total. So Toronto shows twice as many. Yes. And there are probably twice as many submissions, too. There were 6,933 total submissions. Most of these submissions were international, but around 1,200 actually came from Canada. I love another statistic that John dug up that all of the uh, films together comprised 32,320 minutes of film. I did that in my head. (laughs) Damn, homie. That math. I think Canada makes you smarter. Well, this podcast is going to prove otherwise, I think. When we talk about how big this festival is, there was an expected number of 100,000 visitors on Festival Street. And hey guys, what is Festival Street? It's about a four block radius festival village, in quotes. Um, That's what they like to call it. Most of the screenings are in a, a vicinity of about three blocks or four blocks. And then there are some further theaters. They actually shut down um, a main street in downtown Toronto for the festival. So mm-hmm. that was pretty cool. For the first few days, though, it wasn't closed the entire... Uh, ah, technicality. Really? Yeah, I think it yeah it was, well, that was something that interested me because it, it seemed as if after... Um, I guess it was we got here Wednesday. So Thursday, Friday... Close, no? No. King Street's, oh. King Street's been open since Monday, I'd want to say. So that was surprising to me because it's, I guess, maybe they program it so the majority of the visitors are expected to come in the first four days. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday for us have been more busy, I think, than the first four days that we were here. Well, either way, the whole downtown area is kind of taken over by the festival. There's all this hubbub. I actually heard someone say, um, when I was walking around, I heard a local Canadian say, Film festivals think they can just come into downtown the cities and just take them over. And that is and what happens. And we can. Yeah. Yes. And we do. And it's actually really exciting. I mean, I think the thing that's one of the things that's so cool about this festival in particular is that it's not like it's the film industry people on one hand and the you know Toronto locals on the other. Everybody gets in on the game. Yeah, there were a lot of locals who would line up in the rush for the rush tickets and line up at the box office, just like industry people. There's a a large like sort of cineplex where a lot of the films were playing called Scotiabank, and I heard one of the volunteers saying that they got an average of I think 7,500 people every hour 
in coming up and down the stairs of their cineplex and, and those aren't all just industry people those are people who live in toronto who just want to come see some good movies so it's cool like that i would also see tons of people lined up like along the various like outside of the various venues behind um the ropes like you know they kind of rope off areas just like looking and craning their necks and having their cameras out and the first time I saw that, I was like, who are you guys waiting for? And they were like, oh, whoever. There were just people by the hundreds standing outside waiting for some celebrity sighting. Yeah, there was a lot of spontaneous cheering that I would hear erupt like throughout down, all downtown. And it's just not something that I've seen at film festivals. They've always usually been like sort of composed and like everyone's very cool. But it, it was kind of interesting to see people really jump into their fandom in that sense. Yeah, in many ways, even though many of the same films actually screened um, at Cannes, as in Toronto, the atmosphere is almost a complete 180. It's it's inc- it's different. It's very much about the fans here. It's totally unpretentious, um, and it like geared. It's geared toward including the local community and like engaging cinema fans. And especially at the Midnight Madness greetings, which are kind of famous, they have this theater called Ryerson. And at 11.59 each night, a film screens there. Um, It's uh, adjacent to a local college. And so a lot of college kids come. And there's just this incredible energy. People memorize the sponsorship pre-roll in front of every film. So everybody acts it out together. (laughs) And um, That's so funny. Yeah. I did not get to see that. Oh, it's really funny. I saw Morgan Spurlock's Rats, which is a completely, it's a horror documentary. It's a very disgusting movie. And it was perfect for Midnight Madness because everybody was screaming the entire time going just like, oh, ew, stop. I can't believe that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, at the beginning of the film, Morgan Spurlock actually uh, did a little introduction. He said that he's, he, at the beginning of his film career, he had screened at Cannes for, um, for Super Super Size Size Me. And somebody said to him, oh, it doesn't matter if you screened at Sundance or Cannes. It's about screening at Ryerson in Toronto at midnight. Like, that's the best audience. And I see why. And, you know, even though uh, it's definitely a crowd-friendly festival, it does have lots and lots of world premieres, international premieres. I mean, also tons of international journalists. I know Emily had this experience at Cannes, but I have not been to Cannes. And I was really surprised here in in a great way to hear so many different accents and when I was getting when I was picking up my um, badge at the press office the guy in front of me was from a press outlet in China the guy behind me was from France behind him was a guy from Tunisia it was it's like a very international crowd at least for from the media perspective and there's also a concurrent industry conference so if you guys come here with your films or even if you come here to network which is always a very very good idea there are lots of events. There are like connection points where you can meet up with people specific, like funders or people that might be able to help your film. And there are master classes and panels. Um, there's really a lot of value for filmmakers. And unlike some of the other festivals like Tribeca, you can buy an industry badge and only industry people are allowed into the master classes and the, the filmmaker panels. So that kind of ups the seriousness of those um, events. I actually got the chance to catch um, one of those industry panels. I was so busy that I actually ended up getting a badge um, from Tamara, who we should shout out because that was really nice of her. Um, but I only ended up getting to go to one of the panels and it was about shorts 
and sort of uh, what you can expect after you make your short at the festivals. Where do you go from there? And it was made up of managers and scouts that actually come to festivals to look for talent. And at the end of the panel, the last question that the moderator asked was, what in the next two minutes before you leave can anyone in the audience do to sell them to sell their films to you or to get your attention? And the two talent scouts that were on stage said, well, if you have a business card with a link to your short film on it, give it to us and we'll take a look. So that is literally a perfect example of how those industry panels could benefit you if you choose to go to them and come prepared too. Come prepared. That's actually a really good point. If you go to these festivals to network, then make sure you have networking tools with you. Yeah. Not DVDs, by the way. If anyone's still thinking of handing around their film on DVDs, it's not the way to go anymore. A business card with a screening link to your film is a really good idea. Yeah. And I've never heard of that before. But Yeah, a, a very uncomplicated screening link yeah. that has very few characters right. in the URL. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but that's a good point. A screening yeah. link that somebody would actually have the patience to type in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there totally. Speaking of advice to filmmakers, we actually have a great interview on the site with Brad Dean, who's one of the programmers here at TIFF. He works on the Cinematech section, which is for independent, experimental, and avant-garde cinema. And he had really great advice for getting your work noticed at festivals so or by festivals. So how do you even get a programmer to take a look and sort of um, pay you any attention? And, and to Emily's point earlier, he said that one of the reasons TIFF is special is that out of 480,000 attendees, only 5,000 are industry uh, people. And that means that filmmakers can actually sit with a real audience and see how they respond. So it's, um, especially for the premieres here, it's these filmmakers and potentially your first opportunity to be in front of and sort of get the reactions of a live, you know, real non-industry audience, but who are like really cinephiles and people who love movies and appreciate appreciate you. Although I have to say, I thought that, you know, because of stereotypes that Canadians would be more polite at movies. And we all noticed that um, at some screenings, people had their cell phones out the whole time. And this was a festival first for me, although I know it's not a festival first in general. Last night's screening, people booed. Really? Yeah. That's cool. I think that one of the reasons why it's not a big industry festival is that it's actually not traditionally a buyer's festival. And that was evidenced this year by the basically only two acquisitions that happened that were of note. Um, one of the, the really big ones was Jackie, which sold to Fox Searchlight about Jackie Kennedy. But most of the other films came here with distribution already. And that changes the scene dramatically because unlike Can or Sundance, it's not a marketplace. There was one buyer that I talked to who mentioned that his company was was circling one of Errol Morris's documentaries that, that's here at the, at the festival. But other than that, every buyer I talked to was just seeing movies because they wanted to see them, not to buy them. They're all here, though. Because they want to be in the know. And they also have films that they've already bought that they're showing here. Oh, that makes sense. So they're kind of promoting their own work like in Moonlight. a way. Like Moonlight. A24 is Moonlight here. Right. I thought it was interesting. A couple of the filmmakers I talked to discussed this. Um, one of them is Avi Nesher. He's just an amazing guy. He, um, You might not know his name, but he's one of the biggest filmmakers in Israel. He made their equivalent of Robert Allman's MASH. Um, and he's had five films in TIFF. And actually, the last four were four in a row, which he wasn't sure, but he thinks is a record. So in other words, he had four films in a row at the last four TIFFs, including this one. 
Um, and he said he loves this festival more than Berlin, more than Cannes, because he, I like the words he used. He said it's not an oily festival. In other words, you sort of don't have to like rub up against industry people. And it's you really, slick. you don't have to be slick. It's, you know, really focused on the love of cinema. They write beautifully about the films in their programs, which they do, I think. Um, but then... I talked to uh, Andreas Dalsgaard, who is a very prolific documentary filmmaker. He just showed the film that he co-directed called The War Show here, but he came straight from Venice, which we talked about on last week's show. And the way he described it, it sounded so amazing. It's like very, very art focused, which we mentioned. But basically, he made me want to just get up and make sure to go there next year because he said he, he described getting picked up at the airport in a gondola. And you basically sail along the canals of Venice. You end up at the, the Lido, which is an island in the middle of the city. And you show your film at a palazzo designed by Mussolini. And it, he said it's just like it's all about art. And he felt like Toronto in comparison was all about the deals. So it's not an entirely deal-free festival for sure. We can get into some of the uh, movies that we saw, but I'm curious as a, kind of an overarching thing, what were some of the general themes that you guys have pulled out? I, I feel like at every festival we go to, we come away with like, oh, this year the films were, I remember what, when John said about Tribeca, they were weird. Had a, he had a weird theme. Um, <laughs> that also was true for this year at TIFF. So. I'm wondering, think, John, if you're just attracted to weird I films. I think I just like weird movies. This might be a taste profile for yeah. you. <laughs> mm. I saw a few really interesting themes emerge. One of the themes you can tell just by looking at the lineup, there are a number of narrative films and documentaries about radicalism and the rise of jihadism. I was able to catch two of them. But the other one, Nocturama, um, is supposed to be very good. And each one attempts to answer the question, like, who are these aspiring radicals? What motivates them? What challenges them? And um, what doubts do they have, if any, about the path that they choose to follow? Um, the one that I saw was called Layla M. And it was made by two filmmakers from Amsterdam. It was really interesting. It was about a young woman who uh, becomes sort of alienated from her family and her family's Muslim, but they're not traditionally very religious and conservative. And she kind of wants to rebel against that and go, you know, propel towards her roots. She winds up meeting, um, being involved in some very radical organizations and meeting a man online for whom she moves to Syria. She becomes radical radicalized. He goes through training. And at the end, he winds up actually participating in a suicide mission. And Spoiler alert. Yeah. I, mean, I, don't, think this, I don't think this movie is going to come to theaters <laughs> yeah. anytime soon. Sadly, it's really good, though. It was good. Yeah, I yeah. watched it, too. Yeah. John caught the end of it. Um, but I thought it was so interesting because, A, it gave the female perspective on this situation. We we basically never get that. And B, it all of the films seem to come to a similar, similar conclusion about radicalism, which is that it's not necessarily about religion. It's about identity and searching for community. Every filmmaker that made a film about radicalism did a lot of research into the material. And so that this is coming from a true place. The Layla M. filmmaker in, in particular said that most of it was about people trying to hone in on their identity and especially their cultural and traditional identity. And so it was less about the actual tenets of belief that they have and more about wanting to believe in something. I think you're right that that was, you know, a theme. And actually the the guy I just mentioned who went to Venice, Andreas Dalsgaard, 
the film that he made, The War Show, was also about Syria, and it was a doc, and it was also from the female perspective, because as I mentioned, he was a co-director. His co-director was um, Obeda Zaitoun, and she is a Syrian um, radio journalist who uh, basically just when the Arab Spring was kind of starting, she just kind of casually started filming her friends with her phone and, you know, small cameras. And then as things started to pick up, they realized, whoa, there's something really happening here. And they, the whole group of them started documenting. The very act itself was pretty radical. Um, I'm not saying they were radical Islamists. I'm saying they were um, being radical within Syrian society by protesting in such a way and I got such chills because people who um, listen to this show know that I started in video activism. And that's what these guys were doing. They were filming protests. They were filming their lives, but their lives got sort of totally swept up in the Arab Spring. And she had this line in there uh, in the narration where she said, during the protests, the people with cameras were the ones they targeted first. It's pretty dramatic. And, and by they, targeted, you mean, what do you mean? Well, the protests were violently cracked down upon. So people with cameras were either arrested, the cameras were broken. And as things go on, part of the reason this documentary is just so jaw-dropping is that people die. Um, people who are people that just are just like people we'd hang out with in Brooklyn, the kind of like the artsy crowd, a little bit re rebellious, but not so serious. And then things just get so, so deadly serious. And I don't think anyone has seen um, a portrayal of, of what's happening in Syria like this that's so intimate. And basically, she, she eventually gets out of Syria with all these hidden hard drives of material. She meets this filmmaker, Andreas, um, in Europe, and uh, they put the film together. And it's, it's absolutely terrifying and riveting. What's it called again? The war show. Well, switching from Syria to Canada, um, I saw a lot of Canadian movies, uh, which I guess is to be expected at a Canadian film festival. But I did a podcast with the director of Werewolf, and she kind of just talked about how the scene here was so isolated. Like if you're not in Toronto or if you're not in Montreal, you're kind of nowhere. Um, and it was that sort of slice of life that she tried to capture within her movie. So that was just something I was exposed to the, for the first time. Um, something that I keep seeing again and again at these festivals though, is what I like to call the borderline mafia, which is, um, Josh Mond, Antonio Campos and Sean Durkin's, uh, sort of, film collective borderline films who also just started a executive label at Sundance they and their sort of connections or their offspring I guess are pumping out movies now um making starting their own production companies um so I saw two films that had to deal with the borderline people one was Katie Says Goodbye and the other was Christine I interviewed producer Jake Wasserman and uh Emily's friend actually. Oh, Nick Pesh. Yeah, Nick Pesh at Sundance because they were a part of Borderline's executive label's uh, first feature, The Eyes of My Mother. Katie Says Goodbye is actually Jake's new production company's first feature that they're putting out. And the director of that was a friend of Antonio, Josh, and Sean. Um, they all went to school together. So it's really awesome to see like how distinct their tastes are and 
that they've all sort of banded together to help each other out. I just really admire that model. Would you say they're kind of like the new like Duplass Brothers crew? I think they make more interesting movies. Yeah, um, they're totally different tonally. But yeah. I think it's the idea is similar. It's but their movies are much darker, much much weirder, much much darker. The yeah. idea that they're like sort of like the new youngish cool kids that like all work together again and again and pump out tons of movies. They have a very specific style of working though where they all it's kind of like on a rotating wheel so one directs one writes and one edits and then they switch so that each gets a chance to be the director so they're like a real collective yeah that's really awesome and uh christine is actually uh campus's first movie outside of that model and um i I thought it was really great Uh, i interviewed him about it this morning actually so we'll you can hear more about that later. Another big theme that emerged as I was I was watching some of the biggest premieres at the festival was the intersection and conflation be- between science and art. Um, I saw Terrence Malick's Voyage of Time, an epic, basically planet Earth-like documentary that um, attempts to recreate the formation of the universe and the emergence of life. Anyone who loves planet Earth would love this. Um, it's worth seeing an IMAX. Really? Yeah. I feel like Planet Earth is such a, it kind of appeals to a wider audience than Malik's sort of trippy. Well, this, he actually has two cuts. Okay. So he has the director's cut, which is the one that I saw and was much more Malikian. Yeah. And then he has the IMAX cut, which is geared toward a wider audience and has different narration. Oh, interesting. And is shorter. I think it's 45 minutes. I heard actually that, yeah, the IMAX one is the way to go. Yeah. So, would you choose agree? that one? I, I totally agree. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I, based on what I've heard, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> unless you're really into people saying, Mother, where am I? <laughs> oh, God. Where do I come from? Oh, yeah, I'm into that. <laughs> <laughs> I address my mother <laughs> all the time, randomly. <laughs> I call her every Thursday and ask those questions. <laughs> <laughs> where you be? There were two Herzog films this year at the festival. One was a narrative, Salt and Fire, and one was a documentary, Into the Inferno. Um, both were about volcanoes. And both were about the intersection of science and art as well. Um, Salt and Fire was a bit more tongue in cheek. It's um, it got a lot of laughs at the press screening to the point where some people actually didn't realize it was being tongue in cheek. They thought he was being earnest and they they took it to heart and therefore completely rejected it. But it was so absurd at times that you by the end of the film, there's like three scenes that are some of the most absurd you've seen in a really long time and they don't fit into the movie at all and you realize <laughs> that like the joke's on you if you thought Herzog was taking himself seriously he seems to be getting more and more and <laughs> he's people, self-aware yeah he's he's aware of that and he's sort of playing into it a bit more I think I believe that too yeah yeah he knows his appeal yeah his documentary Into the Inferno is more serious it's about volcanoes and I was actually lucky enough to be able to talk to him for 40 minutes so jealous we're all jealous here it was a last minute interview that I really pushed for and I was elated the entire time we (laughs) talked about everything from flying cars to robots to utilitarianism to volcanoes of course (laughs) and um and and to like the idea of basically epistemology like you can't possibly know everything and quantify everything and his he he said that his entire career is built on the idea of surrendering to the the unknown when i was waiting to go into the interview the publicist said that every time they would go in to give a five minute warning to the interviewer 
um, he was talking about something different. So <laughs> it would end something completely, you know, like where did that come from and how could anyone possibly have gotten to that point of conversation in 15 minutes? So yeah, one of my things, one of the things I was most upset about uh, from this whole festival was that we didn't get to, we're not going to be able to release what was actually said between you two, because I think that would have been a, an awesome podcast, but it, apparently he's done with podcasts. So he says, he says he doesn't like podcasts very much. And he talks about the internet as if it has a capital I. So, um, I think that he, when we, when I was first meeting him, he said, um, is this for print or is it going for the internet? <laughs> so, I can't believe a guy who has admitted in public that he loves cat videos, doesn't like podcasts. One of the best uh, industry events I went to was at the Doc Conference, which is an entire day of the industry conference just devoted to documentaries. While Herzog has made a few narratives like Salt and Fire, which is here, he's, of course, more well known for his documentaries, which he's been making for over 40 years. And uh, his editor, Joe Binney, who's, who's collaborated with him on 27 of those films, came and spoke at the conference. Now, he got a big crowd anyway because he's Herzog's editor and you know who doesn't want to know what it's like to work with one of the quirkiest personalities in the industry. But what really got everybody going is that he announced, Benny announced at this um, presentation that Into the Inferno, the film that, that Emily mentioned that he edited that's playing here at TIFF, would be the, the pair's last collaboration. And this is a crowd full of documentary makers and aficionados and everybody like gasped. It was it was a huge announcement. And what was kind of cool is that instead of giving a typical masterclass, he took the opportunity with his wife actually on stage to give um, a whole rundown of his career with Warner. So they had half an hour and they've made 27 films and they took the entire time to just make a slideshow, to, to go through a slideshow of every single film title and give kind of like one mini anecdote about every single one. Um, I wrote it up, it's already on the site, and it was it was really fascinating and also an interesting glimpse into their relationship, which you know one wouldn't normally get to see. And just kind of like any marriage or any long-term relationship, it was so clearly full of of ups and downs. And he um, definitely has a deep tenderness and affection for Werner Herzog, and you know admitted that the dude's a pain in the ass and that it, it's been hard. Cool. Now we decided that uh, it would be fun to share three of the films for each of us, which uh, stuck with us the most after the long seven days we've spent here. How many movies did we see yeah, in total we didn't, together? We didn't talk about this, actually. Yeah, I said it at the top of the show you twice. Said, you said, <laughs> so you said we, we... 33. 33. So I saw um, nine movies total. And out of those, I did seven interviews. Um, so the ones that I chose... Uh, were all ones that I ended up interviewing some of the people involved with later. Um, the first I would talk about, I mentioned a little bit earlier, and that was uh, Katie Says Goodbye. Um, I think it may have been my favorite that I saw at the festival as far as films that premiered go. Um, me and Emily talked a little bit about some of the reactions to it earlier, um, just one-on-one. -on -one. The film is directed by Wayne Roberts, and it stars Olivia Cook as a diner waitress who lives in a small town in Arizona and um, is eternally optimistic, basically, um, even with a lot of negative things going on in her life. Her mother is promiscuous, and as is she. Um, 
in addition to working at as a as a waitress, she turns tricks on the side with some of the local characters, and um, naturally things start to go sour for her. You said you'd heard some some reactions to it, Em? Yeah, I heard um, from three different females who had seen it, and um, two of them said that it was absolutely misogynistic and vile, and they couldn't stand it, and one of them said she loved it. So I'm very intrigued. So I'm I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to see it. Yeah, and I was saying I could see how people could would see it's misogynistic, and I'm obviously not one to really be the uh, ultimate opinion on this because I am a man. So uh, I would just have to say that I think that's one of the the themes of the movie itself is it's more uh, about the evils of men, I'd say, than the weaknesses or um, of women because it really Olivia Cook just kills this performance it's a very dynamic character and she's great and i hope she gets nominated for something later down the road or i think i i hope people see this movie so they see her performance in it i think it's great what's one of the films that you saw that you want to talk about em well i was really excited for kelly reichardt certain woman i love her and i was able to talk to her about the film afterwards which is another dream come true second dream come true this festival season um Certain Woman is, uh, it plays like a short, a collection of short stories, and it's actually based on a collection of short stories. It stars Michelle Williams and Kristen Stewart and Laura Dern in three different small town woman stories. Um, each of the women is independent and, um, and fierce in her own way, but uh, their lives are pretty ordinary, and the, the, the scope of the film is very small, but the implications are very large. Um, and it, it's one of Reichardt's best. She's incredible at just capturing the silence between people and w- how that can actually say more than than words. How about you, Liz? You know, I realized I forgot to say the one like actual thematic thing I noticed across the film. So I'll say that real quick, which is I, th- I found again and again something that we've actually been writing about on the site, this nostalgia thing. It seemed to be everywhere. I mean, films can obviously be about past, present, future, or like made up times. And I've noticed again and again these films about the past, either with this kind of nostalgic longing or this kind of like mysterious past, let me figure out this thing that happened. One of the movies that I won't talk a lot about now, but um, it's coming to Showtime later this month, so I'm just going to give it a quick plug, um, talking about weird shit that happened in the past, and I do mean shit, you'll see what I mean when you see it, uh, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee by Academy Award uh, winning filmmaker Nanette Burstein is all about the guy that created McAfee software and how he was accused of a murder in Belize and this insane chase and stuff that happened, honestly, I don't even really like those kind of true crime dramas that are so popular right now, but I'm a big admirer of Burstein and I wanted to interview her for the podcast. So I went to see the film and I was just mouth open, could not believe what I saw. That's all I'm going to say about it, but it's like, it's insane. Um, And then on the flip side of that, I saw a beautiful, gorgeous, uplifting, probably the perfect documentary, The Eagle Huntress, which didn't premiere here. It premiered at Sundance, um, but this was a new cut of it. And uh, I'm mentioning it because um, it's one of the most cinematic documentaries I've ever seen. I've never thought to myself, wow, I'm really glad I saw that documentary in a theater. 
but I'm really glad I saw this documentary in a theater. And and part of the reason I'm mentioning it is because I interviewed the filmmaker Otto Bell and um, one of the reasons I really like coming to festivals with no film school in particular is that filmmakers really like speaking with us because they know that we care. They know that we're filmmakers. And I think they sort of let their guard down in a way that they don't with other outlets because we ask them about their craft and we ask them sort of like, so how's it going for you? Um, And the Eagle Huntress filmmaker, Otto Bell, this was his first feature. And again, it was magnificent. So I expected him to be this like big, confident, you know, star filmmaker. And he was so humble. And he basically told me about how um, he spent his life savings on the film. And you'll see why when you when you see how sort of sweeping and soaring it is. Um, And he was sort of $80,000 in the hole and didn't think he was going to be able to finish it. But he knew he had something special on his hands. So on a whim, he wrote an email to Morgan Spurlock with like a 10 minute clip he had met Morgan at a party one time and was like, you know what? I'm so desperate. Let me just do this. And Morgan Spurlock wrote back that day and said, let's talk. And basically was like, what can I do for you? And eventually Morgan Spurlock helped make it happen is now one of the EPs. And Daisy Ridley is the executive producer and um, a producer who I really admire. Stacey Reese, like finished producing the film. Um, and it's really one of those, you know, tales of filmmakers banding together to make something amazing happening so we're actually going to have Spurlock and Stacey Reese and Otto Bell on the podcast in time for the film's October release and we also have the cinematographer um, in a previous podcast from Sundance she talked about it as one of our most popular podcast episodes on documentary cinematography so really quickly I'll also just say that I saw two of the new Black Mirror episodes that are premiering for Netflix and I interviewed those directors and they were pretty cool but the other movie I'm going to highlight is The Giant by Johannes Nilholm. Just because it was really weird. We were talking about how I like weird stuff earlier. Give it the one log, the log line pitch. Okay. So the movie is about a deformed dwarf who it's really hard. To, who it, wants to be the bocce ball yeah, champion. She, he basically wants to be the European equivalent of bocce balls champion for the Nordic hemisphere. Say that again. <laughs> I mean, that's really... That's really what it is. Um, it's called Penatique. So he wants to be the European Penatique champion. So I interviewed the director and I was also fully prepared to be interviewing the deformed dwarf uh, in the movie. And I was a little bit nervous about it because I, I mean, for obvious reasons, if you see the picture, which maybe will accompany this podcast, I think you'd be a little bit nervous too. He has a... Uh, giant uh, um, protruding forehead that covers one of his eyes. So he's almost like a cyclops. Um, So I was very nervous. And then he ended up not showing up the next morning. And not only that, I learned that that was all makeup and he wasn't actually deformed. He was just a dwarf. Oh, that undermines it. it, Wait, wasn't it it a documentary? No, no, no. But it was shot like a documentary. Um. And I don't think it undermines it. I was, I, when I, when he said that, I was like, holy shit, like that blows my mind that I spent that entire movie actually believing that this guy was severely deformed. Um, so while I was watching it, it was hard to watch for sure, but it stuck with me more than I think any movie has that I've seen. And it was one of the first movies that I've, I saw here. So, um, an interesting movie to check out. About it that was so effective. 
Um, I mean, it was surreal, and the plot was basically an underdog sports story about a deformed dwarf uh, who had dreams that collided with his daily life about how he was actually a giant. Um, so that's why it's called The Giant. Wow. I saw, I also got to, a chance to see the pretty highly anticipated My Entire High School Sinking Into the Sea, which is the first feature from Kyle Martin's new production company called Electric China Land. He was one of the main producers of Tiny Furniture, um, and his company is going to become, I think, one of the more important production companies in indie film. Anyway, this film is entirely animated um, by a couple who are co-animators, and they did this out of their apartment. They had no idea that they would be able to cast people like Lena Dunham and Susan Sarandon and Reggie Watts and Jason Schwartzman, and the list goes on. The husband in the couple is a pretty famous comic book writer called Dash Shaw, and I got to talk to him at the festival, and he basically said that he had planned to make this big Hollywood film and he had gotten so close to it going into production but it had fallen apart so many times and he was so disheartened so he was just like okay screw it I'm gonna make a film for me nobody's ever gonna see it it's just gonna be for me it's gonna be highly original and personal and I'm gonna make it with my wife and they worked on it for two years hand drew it got a bunch of different um, animators to come pitch in and um, do little scenes and of course this was the one that wound up landing him a spot at New York Film Festival and a premiere at Toronto so it's kind of a cool story about how he just decided to exit the system and that wound up being his way to get into the system. Cool. Very cool. So then Liz, what are some movies that you want to see now that you didn't get a chance to see at TIFF? Well, I tried to see, you know, some of those documentaries and the more um, international films that I didn't think that we'd get a chance to see later. But I still do want to see the big names that everybody's talking about, like Arrival, Moonlight and La La Land. Yeah, I'd, I'd piggyback on that, saying that um, I heard about a lot of these movies at TIFF. Um, and now I think they're going to be bigger releases. Uh, one of those is Colossal with Anne Hathaway. Um, and I would... N- never consider that I would walk away from Tiff wanting to like eagerly see an Anne Hathaway movie. <laughs> Me neither. It's about her transformation into a kaiju, which is a, like a Godzilla type character. Um, and it's, Oh, been I getting, thought it was a kayaking Jew. No. <laughs> <laughs> Free fire, uh, is another one that I didn't get to see here because I didn't even realize it was here. It's a 24's new Ben Wheatley movie. Um, and finally a monster calls, which is, uh, getting compared to sort of like Spielberg's Amblin, early Amblin movies. Did you guys hear that people passed out at the midnight screening of Raw? Yeah. Yeah. What? (laughs) So a a film by a French director, Julia Ducourneau, premiered here. It's called Raw. It's about, um, it's a a coming of age story about um, a vegetarian who basically turns to cannibalism slowly over the course of the film. That's a great premise. Yes. And it's going to be a big horror hit. Um, You can already tell by the buzz and um, how much people loved it. But uh, people, there were some very hard to watch scenes and about three ambulances were called for three different people. Uh, at the premiere. Well, you actually asked me if I wanted to take your ticket to that because I think you had a ticket to that. But something yeah, I'll be interviewing the director at some point. Cool. It just well, didn't work out in the schedule. Well, what else would you have wanted to see? I'm really excited to see Jackie. It, it's um, it's supposed to be incredible. People love it. 
I think it's going to be a big, big Oscar contender. Um, and then Manchester by the Sea, which premiered at Cannes, and I missed it there. Um, everybody loves it. A very slow melodrama, uh, but that's supposed to be very, very powerful. Yeah. My fair, not so much John's. Let's go the cannibal one. <laughs> <laughs> and on along similar lines, this, this uh, British film called The Leveling, about a family that implodes based on its past secrets being revealed, playing to another theme that Liz mentioned earlier. Exploding families. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Spontaneous combustion. And then the cannibals can come by and eat what's left. <laughs> That's a good premise for a movie. Someone, yeah, there's there's <gasps> your No Film School Weekly Challenge. You heard it here first, folks. Someone go make a movie about exploding people and cannibals. So we really uh, owe a big debt of gratitude to the TIFF press office, especially Tamara, um, who helped us out so much, and all the publicists. I mean, we work really, really hard at these festivals, and those publicists might work twice as hard as we do. I don't know when they sleep. They don't. It's totally, they don't. You can tell in their eyes. Yeah. So thank you, everyone, who uh, made it possible for No Film School to get all this great coverage here. And we'll be uh, putting up all those posts um, on the site in the next week or so, and the podcast will be rolling out um, throughout the year as the films are released. Yeah, we'll be releasing one of those interviews every other week, I think is the plan. Um, so stay tuned for 10 to 12 weeks of podcasts. So we're leaving tomorrow. I am headed straight to the Camden International Film Festival, and Emily and John are going back to New York, headed straight into Independent Film Week uh, in New York. So we'll tell you all about those events um, and all the news we'll catch you up on that we didn't catch you up on this week uh, in next week's show. And please, as usual, um, if you haven't done it yet, subscribe on iTunes. You can find all these articles um, on nofilmschool.com. You can find me on Twitter at LizFilm. And me on Twitter, E.L. Booter. And me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John. Shout out to Tazon Day for following me this week. Chocolate Rain's a great song. Word. And we are all on Twitter at No Film School. See you next week. Bye.